Turn to someone and say, I love worshiping God with you. Jesus is Lord, there he is. Where two or more are gathered in his name, he's there. It's one of the great uh, equations, beautiful equations of worship. When we worship together in Jesus' name, he shows up. So he's here, and he's walking in this place, and he wants to minister to each of us. One of the mistakes we make as Christians is we think whatever spiritual gift we got, that's all the gifts we're going to get. Maybe he wants to give out some more tonight. I mean, a good father just doesn't give you gifts of one Christmas. Maybe there's a next Christmas. Uh, I know you've been hearing from some great men of God and uh, they talked a lot about discipleship, and uh, one of the great issues that I face with discipleship personally is the idea that I kind of need to grit my teeth and try harder, and try harder, and try harder. And sometimes it helps to just flip the script a little bit and try to get into, well, what does God want? You know, I kind of feel like I know what, what I want and how I want to grow and how I want to walk with God and how I want to live my life. But do we ever just stop and realize that our discipleship really did cost God everything? So let's try to turn a little bit, if we could, turn our attention to what, what is God after? What is it that God really wants? Maybe we can... Stop the war inside of some of you where we, we battle with this. Well, what, what are we doing? What is this thing called Christianity about? Why does it seem so hard at times? Well, let's go to where God answers the question of what exactly God wants. And there is an answer, it's in all, all of the Bible is funneling into one verse of Scripture. I hope you know that. This whole book, which is a library of books, funnels all into Revelation chapter 21. So go ahead and go there. <coughs> Excuse me. The peach cobbler is kind of working on me. <laughs> all of history... All of creation, everything that we know and see, and everybody that we've ever met or known or whoever lived, is all funneling into the heart of God. What, what satisfies the heart of God ultimately is revealed to us by John the Revelator in chapter 21. And this is it. This, this is no secret. This is where it's all headed. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And this is it. 
This is, this is where God, God's heart is finally satisfied. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now, as if finally, as if yes, this is the divine yes of all time. The dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Hallelujah. That's where it all goes. Now what's interesting about verse 3 is that the word with is used three times. And you can look on your notes here. The first with is that God will be with us physically and geographically in a place. If I called my wife Teresa right now and, and she would say, well, where are you? I'd say, well, I'm with college students at the UCF retreat at the camp. So she would get this picture in her mind that I'm speaking and I'm hanging out with you all. That's the with here. The first use of the with, that the dwelling of God is with men. So it's a place. It's going to be a place. The second with is it says, and God will be will live with them. The, the, the second with is we will live life together with God. And that means we will live out eternity with God. In other words, life together. We're not sure exactly what we'll be doing. We've got a lot of pictures of it throughout Scripture about what we'll be doing there. We'll, we'll probably be gardening or something. It'll have something to do with trees. We know there's going to be trees there. It'll have something to do with animals. We know there'll be animals around. So, I don't know if we're going to be vets and you know, horticulturists, but, but we'll all have something. But we also know there won't be any sun or the moon, and the face of Jesus will be our light. How awesome is that? Jesus will be our light. Try to go there in your mind, huh? It's interesting. And the second, or the third with... He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And that with means that he will be leading us, he will continue to provide for us, and he will protect us. All of that is included in the last with. And by the way, because he's appearing here as a groom, Leading and protecting and providing are the top three things that a husband is about in a family. He leads, he provides, and he protects. Jesus will be our husband. Now, I'm, since I'm a guy, it's hard to go there, but I get it. And I want to live that out. This is a scene in a way, as a job description for you husbands. You lead, you protect, and you provide. Women, wouldn't you want that in a husband? Those were enthusiastic head nods. Yes, man. Are you hearing? Yes. So this is the heartbeat of God. The heartbeat of God is to be with us. 
It's always been that way. But there's a cost to God. Something has happened that has created this rift between God and God's creation. In fact, God loves us so much that the cost of this relationship is now extremely costly to God. To reform, to, to reconnect with who we are. For God so loved the world out of his love of wanting to be with us that he had to give his only son. And that whoever would believe in Jesus would not be condemned, but would be reconnected. So there's a cost here. Malachi 3, 16 and 17 says, it's on your notes, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you are not your own. But you were bought with a price, Price. so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So this, this problem where God's not going to get what God wants involves something. And it's something so crucial that it brings this reconnection. And what is the price? I mean, Paul talks about a price here. You are bought with a price. Bought with a price. You're bought with a price. Well, what's the price? And who was paid? And what was the currency that was used? Was it cryptocurrency? <laughs> <clears throat> what ransom money was paid? How do we enjoy this freedom? Now many of you know what we're about to walk into here. But we have to remember this. We have to remember the cost to God of this discipleship that we walk in. Everything has a value, either in monetary terms or in abstract equivalent. Memories have value, friendship, love, education, faith, and joy. All of these have value. They are worth something. Values are perhaps best measured by the price one is prepared to pay for them. In other words, you can tell a thing's worth by its price. Judging by the price God paid for our salvation, and we bear in mind that our Creator is not ignorant of an item's real worth, we can safely say that the human race is an extremely valuable purchase. And yes, we believe there is one race of people on earth, and it's called the human race. Amen? So judging by this price, human beings are not cheap. They are God's prized possession, actually. Every person, no matter how poor or worthless he or she may appear, is of priceless worth to God. We bear in mind that we were created in the image of God, therefore it's an error for believers to repeatedly refer to themselves as being useless or worthless. It makes nonsense of the enormous price paid for our redemption. The fact is, God paid a very high price for man's salvation. We are his gold. 
We, each one of you, are the pearl of great price in God's eyes. Every one of you is so incredibly special in God's eyes that if there was one person created on the earth, Jesus would have gone to his death and crucifixion for you. Mm -hmm. That's how valuable you are his gold. Every one of us is his most valued possession. And someone once said, a theologian once said, that every one of you is in the very center of God's conscience. I don't know how that works. Big center. But you are in the center. So what do we do here? How do we, how do we know this? We need to go back to the beginning and see what happened when Satan kidnapped us and held us for ransom. So turn to, turn to Genesis chapter 3. As you turn into Genesis chapter 3, I wanted to share about the law of God. There's a posit, or a law of God, all throughout Scripture. And I found the best summary of it is Hebrews 9.22. You don't have to turn there, but just keep, keep your thumb kind of on Genesis chapter 3. Hebrews 9.22 sums it up this way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7 says, In whom we have redemption. It's a big word. Wait a minute. Stop. Redemption. Well, how do, what does that mean? Well, you redeem coupons. You can get the Bible get one free with that coupon. But what is redemption? Through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So we have this equation all throughout scripture of the fact that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So you kind of wonder, like, where, where did this sacrificial blood thread that's all through scripture, where did that start? Well, it started in Genesis chapter 3. And what's interesting about Genesis chapter 3, it tells the story of the first sin. The first sin. The first time that somebody said no to God. Like a two-year-old. No. The serpent was pretty crafty. I think you remember the story. Many of you should, should know the story. There's a tree. The serpent, the devil, said to the man and the woman, don't eat from the tree. If you eat of it, you will die. That's pretty plain. Well, they're like my kids when they were little. You can go into any cabinet in the kitchen, but don't go into that cabinet. So we leave the house. What do they do? They run right to that cabinet. <laughs> of course. So, they know the penalty they know what's coming. They eat of the tree, but something weird happens. They were expecting to die, but they didn't die when they ate the fruit. Well, see, the devil was right. We're not going to die. Hmm. 
Verse 6, chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of them were opened. Bing! And they realized they were naked. <gasps> so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Well, that's interesting. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And maybe God kept Sabbath even after his creation Sabbath. Maybe God rested every seven days and he loved to come over to Adam and Eve's house. Have lunch. After church. And God wanted to meet with them. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to be with them. The heart of God is to be with us. But there was a problem, and God knew the problem. They hid from the Lord God. God wants to be with us. When we sin, we hide secrets. This is, this is ancient story, but it's as relevant today as the day that, that this happened. And from the corridors of eternity, you have one of the most important God questions of all time. Where are you? This is the heart of God. I want to be with you. Where are you? Where are you? Maybe he was saying this through tears. Where are you? The man answered, well, we heard you, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? Yes. I ate, we, we, I, we ate. We ate. We're naked. <laughs> the woman! It's her fault. No, don't go there. <laughs> we own it. And God curses them. He says, well, you're going to be cursed. Devil, you're cursed. Woman, you're cursed. Pain, childbearing. Husband, man, you're cursed. You're going to have to work and sweat. Here's the key verse, verse 21. Look, look with me here. And the Lord God made garments of skin for his, for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. This is fascinating scripture here. You've got to picture this scene. We're not sure that anybody has ever seen death before, this, this scene here. But as Adam and Eve are, are walking through this scenario, something is dawning upon them. And what's dawning upon them is that God is going against his word. They're not dead. God said, if you eat from the tree, you will die. So here we're starting to have the first sacrifice, the first forgiveness in Scripture. God takes an innocent animal, probably right in front of them, holds it up. I think Adam and Eve are saying, God, what are you doing? 
We sinned. That animal did nothing. That animal is just being an animal. God, we sin. God slaughters the animal, and I think there's blood everywhere. Might have been a large animal, might have been a small animal, we don't know, but there was blood everywhere. And God skinned the animal and made, listen to this, made them wear the skin as a reminder that he didn't kill them, but that an innocent animal, an innocent third party was killed so that they could go free. This is the first sacrifice in Scripture. Turn to Genesis 22. You know the story. Abraham is tested. God said, verse 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What? What? What did he do? What did Isaac do? God, what are you telling me to do? Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled up his donkey, started to obey God, probably with tears in his eyes. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. So on and so forth. God says, I'm going to provide a lamb. But what's interesting about this story, and I think, I think you should know this story, or do we have to go through it? He was about to sacrifice his son, the knife was held up in the air, and boom, he looked around. But there wasn't a lamb. Wait, God said there would be a lamb. What verse is that? Didn't God say there would be a lamb? Where does it say that? Somebody find that. Verse 8. Abraham answered, Yes, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. But what does verse 13 say? Was it a lamb? What was it? A ram. A ram. Well, that, that's close enough. It rhymes. <laughs> but there was a ram. I wonder why it wasn't the lamb. We'll come back to that. Turn to Exodus 12. People of God are enslaved, enslaved in Egypt. They want to get out of there, don't they? Dirty Egyptians. Let my people go. 
So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, something's going to happen. Go to verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at midnight. A lamb. The right amount of lambs. The best lamb. The spotless lambs. The lambs that are not injured. Not your lame lambs. <laughs> well, that lamb tonight is pretty good. That's a lame lamb. Verse 7, chapter 12. Then they are to take some of the blood and pour it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. So there's specific instructions here. Verse 12. On that night I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is crucial. When I see the blood, death will pass over you. You won't die. Verse 21, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families. Get going. Slaughter the Passover lamb. Here we go. I always thought about, can you imagine some people driving home after this talk from Moses? Like, hey Joe, are you going to do that? Nah. Man, that Moses, he preaches too long. Are you going to do what he said? Nah. I'm going to watch football. I mean, can you imagine coming away from this not trusting Moses? Realizing that the the death of, of possibly your firstborn and yourself. I mean, you do the word here. You do what is spoken of by Moses. You, you, you do it. Or you will die, or people will die. Verse 26. What does this ceremony mean to you? And tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Go to Leviticus 16. You can just kind of flip through the chapter here. 16. 17. Leviticus is a bloody book. It's all about blood. In fact, go to Leviticus 17, verse 11. Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. I'm kind of flipping through the Bible now. Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the prophets, the 
kings who set up the temple for one purpose, which is set up to be able to hold the quantity of animals that the people of God brought yearly to sacrifice, slaughtering millions upon millions of animals to atone for the sins of the people of God. Every year, over and over, thousand years, thousands of years, millions of animals slaughtering. And the temple was made so that the blood would flow like a river in and around and out. And the priests ate the filet. <laughs> they loved it. They got really good food out of the slaughter. And it smelled good. It smelled like barbecue all the time because they were burning it. Man, it's nothing like a good, lean lamb chop. I mean, it's so good. <laughs> but all of this was for atonement, and it got out of hand until Isaiah shows up. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Something's going on here. And they weren't ready for this. Verse 7 starts off with a pronoun. What? He. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, hey, wait a minute here. We know about animals being slaughtered. What's this he business? Who is he? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Who is Isaiah talking about? And I think when the people heard this, I think they wanted to rip off their ears because they couldn't take the fact that he's talking about a person. A person that is coming to lay down his life so that all of us would go free. This is stunning. And we'll just zoom ahead to John. Chapter 1. Where this really cool Jesus freak named John. John the baptizer. Bursts on the scene. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests, ooh, and Levites, ooh, to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not 
to Christ. I am not this guy Isaiah is talking about. They asked him, well then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, verse 22, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What, what do you say about yourself? John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. He's starting to point to this chapter 53 here. Now some of the Pharisees who had been sent to question said, Why do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? John said, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whom, whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. This happened while he was at Bethany. The next day, verse 29, the next day, this is it, this is the culmination, the next day, this is the giant arrow. John the Baptist points and says, look, 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 behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this Jesus Christ, who will be the ultimate sacrifice the blood from his body will flow, and we will receive forgiveness. This is the cost to God of our discipleship. This is what we're about. And I think that the Levites and the Pharisees were like, get out of here. Get out of here. It's not real. It can't be happening. Go back to Isaiah 53, just for a second. What is the cost? Look at verse 3. Isaiah 53. What did he do for us? He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Familiar with suffering. What's the cost there? His reputation. It's all about he lost it. It wasn't about becoming famous. It wasn't about making a lot of money. It was about laying down his life. Look at verse 4. Surely he took of our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Well, what did he give up there? What was his cost there? Well, it's his happiness. This wasn't, this wasn't some kind of joyful thing. Our world today, all they talk about is, are you happy? Are you happy? Are you happy? Are you really happy? Are you happy? Are you happy? Happy. Huh? We're happy. Like that's the most important thing. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Meaning, <laughs> the joy of laying down our lives is ultimately what brings a deeper, a deeper joy than just happiness. Verse 5 and 6. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He gave up his innocence. 
I could go on. But here's what we do. By faith, we believe that the blood crucified Jesus Christ has set us free. Now, Paul uses an interesting phrase. I forgot where the scripture is. Maybe some of you know. Paul says this. Think, think back to the, the garments of skin. Paul says this. We put on Christ. We wear. We wear Jesus Christ. We wear because we are we become like him in his death. But the, the beautiful part is, as you know, we also participate with him in his resurrection. Amen? Amen. So the cost to God of discipleship is so is so deep and so personal and so life-giving to God that he became the sacrificial Lamb of God who has taken away our sin. So now, when we approach discipleship, we go back to this question. Do you, God wants to be with you. You know that. I hope you know that by now. He wants to be with you. And we're all headed there. The question in discipleship is constantly, where are you? Where are you? And a person who you walk with in discipleship, that's the constant question. We, we put it in different questions. But the real question is, where are you? Where are you spiritually? Are you with God or not? You are either with God or you're hiding. There's only one of two places where we can be. We're either with God or we want to hide from God. We want to have secrets, we want to go off and do our own thing or whatever. But I know this. After all these years of, of knowing God, when I'm with people who want to be with God, I want to be with God. <laughs> when I'm with people who don't want to be with God, somehow that pulls me away, and I don't want to be with God. So I know that I'm affected one way or another with people and fellow believers. I, I feel so at home here because I feel like I'm with people who want to be with God. And that just inspires me more to want to be with God, which is discipleship. <laughs> so we're all participating in that discipleship. So are you with Him? That's the final question. Are you with Him? And if you're not with Him, where are you? Let's pray. God, we thank You that You laid down Your life as the sacrificial lamb and God we're thankful that you bled we are thankful that you sweat drops of blood in a place called Gethsemane you didn't want to do this everything within you from this world was fighting against it. The devil was tormenting you. But Jesus, you laid down your life as the sacrificial lamb.
and you went to the cross on our behalf. Thank you that we don't have to slaughter animals anymore. I thank you that your blood shed on the cross satisfies our sin problem for all time and that you made atonement for each of us. God, forgive us for not taking this as deep as we should in our souls. Lord, bring it to our mind. Remind us that the crown of thorns on your head was our evil thoughts. Forgive us. Remind us that the nails in your hands helps to satisfy and forgive the sins of our hands. That the nails through your feet remind us, God, that our feet sometimes rush into evil. And that the blood from your body, Lord, as excruciating as that was, was done so that we could go free and we could be with you. Thank you, God. We are eternally grateful. Literally, we are eternally grateful for what you've done to restore relationship. God, we're sorry. We ask for your forgiveness. Lord, inspire us. Give us our desire to be with you. Return us into pre-sinful form. Restore our innocence that we would know you and play with you, God, and enjoy being with you forever. Lord, we know that discipleship is simply practice. It's just practice here to be with you all the time. We love you in your name, Jesus. Amen.